Hi everyone, it's Paul here, and I'm very excited to share this episode of our podcast because, in some ways, you'll notice that it's a bit different from other episodes that we've had so far. Our guest on this episode, Walla El Sheikh, and what she's doing to provide every child of African descent with a free trip to Africa is much more than that trip, as she talks about. It's about, in her own words, undoing the so called deficit narrative. Whereas the media and governments often just focus on stories of conflict and, and adversity and challenges, I feel like what Walla is doing through Birthright Africa is such a great example of bringing families together. And it might not be reuniting families uh, through you know, who have experienced physical separation through a conflict in their lifetimes, but by empowering and educating young people to understand their roots, to understand other people, I feel like she is really serving as a bridge between different cultures and uh, different countries that I feel like is so key and so relevant to the mission of this podcast and to what other guests on this podcast have talked about. So without further ado, here's Eugene and Walla. to be here with Walla El Sheikh. She's the co-founder and CEO of Birthright Africa. As CEO, I'm sure you're very, very, very busy. Um, so thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. <laughs> you are welcome. You know, it busy is like not even the right word anymore. I don't know what it is. I haven't come up with it, but there needs to be a new term. Yeah, especially with um, quarantining and everything. It's just like there's no division between home and work you know i was teleworking already so it wasn't oh, necessarily yeah. that it's it's the it's an entrepreneurial journey like within the first five years of a startup you're doing everything ceo means you answer the info email and you're talking to a funder it's and everything in between <laughs> That's kind. Of, that kind of sounds a lot like, I mean, it sounds like a harder version of this podcast because sometimes it's just everything is happening mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, but yeah, would love to talk to you about that, get into the questions um, in a bit. But before that, I just wanted to kind of introduce, uh, kind of contextualize what we're going to talk about today. So basically, many of you have probably heard about Birthright Israel. It's a nonprofit that sponsors 10-day trips to Israel for those of Jewish heritage. And if you've been following this podcast for a while, um, you know that in our pilot episode, I talked to Paul about how I personally had very little interest in my Korean heritage, actually, um, until I went to Korea to teach for two years. Um, And that was my first time living there as an adult. And I was able to kind of understand all of the cultural norms that had been going on in my household. You know, all those things that you question, like, why do I have to take off the shoes? Well, that's like a, I don't know, sanitary, like it makes sense to me. But other things like, why do I have to say I'm leaving the house? Why do I have to say I'm returned back to the house? Um, Things like that, like I never really understood. And living there for two years helped me kind of understand those things and also history and also geography. Like to me until then, it was just this name and this little peninsula on a map. I didn't know anything about where things were within the map. So 
yeah, during those two years, I really thought a lot. And I became, I think through that process, I became able to be more proud of everything, like where I came from, how I looked. <laughs> you never really understand what it's like to live in a place where everybody looks like you and how empowering that is. Mm -hmm. um, and my family history, things like that. So I think all of that is very, very empowering. And I think once you have that, people can't take it away from you. And it leads to things like this podcast um, in one form or another. So this episode is not about family separation in the normal sense of immigration, like that kind of family separation, but it's more about the soul searching cultural kind of immersion aspect of it. So, um, and I think that that's really, really important for the many, many complexities surrounding family separation, reunion, immigration in general, and things like that. So um, that's a lot about myself, but I just wanted to kind of start off. Could you tell us about yourself, how you ended up founding this and also your background, uh, where you're from, etc. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Eugene, for having me. I'm so excited that this podcast exists because I feel like you're actually telling my story. We just need to replace South Korea with Sudan because <laughs> I came here at the age of 11. My dad had been a Sudanese uh, diplomat and grew up in Sweden and Uganda, believe it or not after being born in Sudan, and we were in Sudan in between countries. So again, uh, it was at seven years old, I did the first grade in Sudan at a British American school. And then again, at about like nine, 10 years old. And outside of that, I grew up globally. Like I thought of myself, now I can look back and realize I really didn't have an identity. It was like this world citizenry and very international schooling, right? Including an American international school in Uganda for two years. And so I never really thought of myself as just Sudanese. And so then coming to America, going on at the age of 11 with a lot of American context and culture, I was like, this is great. And now the next country is America where I've loved the music all my life. You know, like I grew up listening to Michael Jackson and Diana Ross and watching the Cosby show at four years old in Sweden. Like I have visuals of the italics in Swedish watching the Cosby show. And so I'm coming to this land that everyone else has this desire for. And also what I perceive in the media as this wonderful place, because that's what the media really perpetuates, um, especially back then. Now, clearly we have a completely <laughs> different story and correction. What's happening yeah. is a correction to the American story right now. But let's go back to 1990 and those days, you know, we're coming into or coming out of the recessions of that time into this booming 90s. And I loved it. So where you say you, you know, were questioning, why am I doing things in the home, mm -hmm. you know, related to this, related to that? I'm actually thinking like, is that why I automatically feel this obligation to tell my parents I'm leaving? Like, mm -hmm. you're actually helping me realize something about myself today that I didn't yeah. pay attention to. For me at the time, it was questioning like especially from Sudanese culture being Arab and African descent and Muslim it was a lot of like you can't do this you can't do this you can't date boys you know not even have friends as boys you're not supposed to wear a certain type of clothing or too revealing you can't go out you can't you know, go out past a certain time. There's all these restrictions. And so I'm not appreciating my Sudanese culture, like, because it feels oppressive. It feels like I can't do things in this country that literally tells you, you're free, you can be anybody you want to be, you're so, you know? And I look back now and I realize I was proud to assimilate out of being Sudanese into being American. Because Yeah, very much the same. Right? Because being me, yeah. American felt freeing. And mm -hmm. 
I loved going to school. Like school was my refuge, like making my mm -hmm. teachers proud. At home, I'd come back and feel like I was ready for a critique of some kind, especially a cultural critique. And then, you know, education was pushed. I mean, I was told, you came, we came to this country for your education constantly. Luckily, I excelled at school and I loved it. But I had that tiger mom a lot like a lot of Asian families do. I really identify with that. Where I come home with like a 90 and it's like, where are the other 10 points? <laughs> but I just, I got a 90. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that created all that perfectionism that led to great performance in school, great, you know, aspirations for career. And, you know, I was doing arguably well by the, uh, by the metrics of American uh, success, got my degree in finance at Pace University. I grew up in New York City, by the way, loved that part of it. And I grew up in Briarwood, specifically within Queens. That's very diverse. And that's also unique. I had no clue about racism and uh, just the struggles and the challenges, particularly Black Americans or people of color, the indigenous story, because I'm growing up in American schools that are telling me this exceptional history of America, right? Uh, and so that was really my context of like, I grew up here so grateful that I got to be in the country that everyone else is looking to be in. But obviously, I learned along the way. <laughs> and we could get into that. <laughs> yeah, I'd really, I'm really interested to hear about that second part that you're alluding to, mm -hmm. where you are kind of unlearning or kind of rediscovering. And I guess we can get to that in a little bit, but just to kind of get some, you know, general frameworks going, could you tell us a little bit about how Birthright Africa works, like what it is, how it works? Is it the same thing as the Israel version? Right. Just kind of the general, um, I guess it's your CEO pitch. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I will definitely tell you the story because it is connected to two friends that were of Jewish descent in the mid 20s, when I was in my mid 20s, who were going on their birthright Israel. And I was like, wait, why isn't this happening for black people? Um, mm, that's what I thought when I went to create you. I was like, mm -hmm. this should just be available to everybody. And so in a nutshell, Birthright Africa is committed to providing a free educational trip to Africa for every youth and young adult of African descent. Because as you also described really well, as it relates to your South Korean descent, it is absolutely life-changing transformational to go to your place of ancestry and understand another level of pride and have confidence around who you are and where you come from. In particular, against the backdrop of a system or an education that doesn't tell you your story, right? Mm -hmm. And so we see ourselves as this umbrella organization that's driving systemic change in education. We partner with high schools, colleges, and community-based organizations that have youth and young adults of African descent that they want to provide this opportunity to. In addition, we also register young people to be birthright scholars directly and ultimately will funnel them to approve birthright programs with these education partners. So I'm thinking about it as a system of programs around the country that first begin with local and national exploration within the U.S. so that we learn that history and the contributions of our ancestry here, because that's also the narrative change that we're not luckily starting to understand. Um, and then it culminates on the continent with that 10-day exposure to who you are. And, you know, from the feedback we've been getting from our alumni, we are now, prior to COVID, we were operating for about three years, piloted with the City University of New York. And by the year of return last year in 2019, we had multiple cohorts and we've 
provided the opportunity to about 61 young people in collaboration with our partners who also support the funding um, and facilitation of these amazing journeys. So we are pivoting, obviously, to be more virtual and it looks a little different. <laughs> We're not <laughs> physically traveling. We're virtually traveling and still figuring out and innovating uh, around that. But nonetheless, the connection, right? That's that's really what our mission and our vision is. And Birthright Africa in particular is raising the awareness and the funding that needs to take place to ensure that we our programs can operate uh, sustainably and uh, ensure this legacy is part of our culture for the rest of eternity. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's actually, I think that that moving into a digital format i know that it's it's never going to be the same as actually living there and standing there it's such a it's so important to have that physical travel experience mm -hmm. but at the same time i'm kind of wondering if that might actually be good because you can kind of increase the accessibility and things like that so i think that's really absolutely i mean so i had already imagined oh let's connect our young people of african descent virtually with their peers or whoever they're going to meet once they get to the continent. That was already bubbling in my head. It's a lot already to just coordinate for the physical travel. So we never got to it now because we cannot travel. Yeah, it's made me realize like, oh, this virtual exploration and connection not only can happen consistently, it's going to happen now with scholars who we couldn't have gotten to until they physically traveled. So virtual programming is here to stay. And we can now impact young people of African descent, the ones that we've registered. And we have over 23,000 young people that are interested mm, in wow. this birthright experience. We can now impact them, whereas before mm. it wasn't the focus and the priority. That obviously means some different things when it comes to uh, our funding. But uh, at the same time, we're very clear the minute borders open that it needs to be still touching on the ground because there's mm -hmm. nothing yeah. like that. You can't even really describe the experience. Someone has to just go through it. Mm -hmm. So just to rewind a little bit, mm -hmm. could you tell us a little bit about how you, I guess we left off at your growing up in America. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you kind of started to work in finance, how did you end up <laughs> dropping everything. Well, I guess you didn't drop everything because you still have to deal with some finance, but, you know, basically drop everything and then start this project. I dropped the sector. That's what happened. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and I get that question a lot because what I did was I transitioned my career from finance to education. And folks are always like, how did you do that? That's such a divergence. But it's one of those things where, so a couple of things happened along the journey of working in finance. And I worked at argue, arguably the top firm in the world that you want to work in in finance. So I, I was able to get recruited into the Goldman, Goldman Sachs Summer Analyst Internship uh, in the finance division in school. And that led to the full-time offer. And so when you talk about like, okay, you studied finance and now you're on Wall Street in this firm. It's the Sudanese dream. <laughs> it was my parents' absolute wildest dream, right? And I'm mm -hmm. thinking, okay, great. I'm going to be in finance probably for the next 20, 30 years. I never saw myself as an entrepreneur. This is where everyone else is trying to go. If anything, I started picking up on like, okay, if you're going to leave Goldman, you kind of leave the sector. <laughs> yeah. And that made sense once I started to, it was a combination, right? So I mentioned I had two friends that did Birthright Israel mm -hmm. and it sort of stopped me dead in my tracks. And I said, wait, why isn't this happening for Black people? I need this. Because at that point, I hadn't been to Sudan in 15 years. 
So when mm. we talk about that gap and that disconnection, that it happens for continental Africans like myself who grew up in America. And I could only imagine, I was like, well, that means my Black American, Caribbean American friends also need this. And so this is a great idea. It's such a great name. I want to be part of this. Like, I have to be a part of this. I have a, an understanding of the duality, right? At the same time, within those years, I, I was coming of age understanding that being a Black person in America had a stigma. You got to remember that as Africans, we come to this country, if you weren't born here, especially, not having as much of a race consciousness because we're taught we are Sudanese or Nigerian or Ghanaian. It's whatever we identify with our country, our tribe, our religion, because everyone is Black. So when, where you are back home. So coming into America, unless the school system that you're in or your parents have the consciousness to explain what race is and what your particular race is within that system, you kind of walk around very oblivious, you know, blissful. I realized now it was like a white consciousness. I grew up with this, like, oh, if I just work hard, do well in school, get the, get the job, perform well, I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And that pretty much happened. But then I did notice, and I can look back now and call them microaggressions. I internalized like, wait, there's not a lot of people here that look like me at this company. There's not as many leaders mm -hmm. and entrepreneurs. Wait, what does that mean about how they perceive me? And wait, there's this history about with enslavement and racism. And is that's why there's a black struggle. Also, oh, that's why there's not as many people that were in my classes that were in honors or this and that. Like you start picking up on the inequality, right? Mm. Or the inequities in the system. And you realize you've been the exception. And in a lot of ways, now as you're even climbing higher, you're not really as much as the exception. And I didn't know the history of it. So I'm coming into it and my friend, especially, when I, she was seeing, I was talking this like, America's so exceptional kind of way. She was like, Walla, do you know what happened to black people in America? And I really like, it slapped me in my face, you know, figuratively, because I was like, wait, I don't know. And why don't I know? So I started doing my homework. You know, I love documentaries, watch a lot of PBS, started talking to my black American friends who had grown up in the South and in the Midwest and like heard these like stories of both the negative experiences, but also like the generational stories of like what it was like to try to achieve the American dream. But from this context of 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 challenge, but at the same time, achieving success, because these are my friends that are also going to like grad school with me. Right. I was intentional about getting an MBA also to learn how to develop an organization. And so that's that's what happened. I essentially came to understand that this history has an inequality to it. Birthright Africa will be life changing for connecting to a history that really celebrates our contributions and our pride. So very intentional about highlighting leaders and entrepreneurs along the way in the journey. And I was very intentional about getting into the education sector to find out exactly how we fit within the ecosystem and got an MBA to build the skills and the network to be able to pull off such a big idea because I knew this was so much bigger than me and I needed I wanted to be responsible to the culture to do it right. I guess, as you had mentioned before, it's almost like because you said my story was similar to yours. Mm -hmm. um, I feel I'm like listening to this and I'm thinking, oh, that's pretty much the same thing. Only I didn't start like an organization, but um, <laughs> it's like a similar you thing. You started a podcast. Uh, yeah. And also <laughs> while I was in Korea, I did this. I started this blog project uh -huh. to uh, called Disoriented to kind of bring together different kind of understandings of Asia. And then when I set out on that, I discovered Asia is big. 
Africa is also big. <laughs> exactly. um, so what you were saying really resonated with me. And it leads very well into the next question, which is Pan-Africanness. And you had, you had mentioned that um, you and several other people you know, who had immigrated from Africa, like you have a connection to a particular spot mm-hmm. on the map. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, I guess, what is Pan-Africanness uh, in your understanding? And then I guess also, how do you balance that with people who, you know, African-Americans who, I mean, if they dig far back enough, they will find a connection to a particular spot on the map. But mm-hmm. for all they know, in their regular everyday life, they just are generally African-American. Um, how do you kind of balance those things? Yeah, well, actually, in a lot of ways, maybe some African-Americans feel, they probably feel some access to the Pan-Africanist concept even more because, you know, and I'm not giving you a textbook definition, but I consider mm-hmm. myself a Pan-Africanist. So to me, it's the idea that you believe in the liberation of and the uh, support of Africa and all of its descendants, the diaspora as a whole, coming together in a way that really empowers us. And so we don't necessarily, you know, pit ourselves against each other when it comes to right economic empowerment. How do we do it collectively? The idea of an African union. We have an African union. It's headquartered in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It brings together all these heads of state to think about what is good for the whole of Africa and not just any one country. Uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, who was the first president of Ghana, also believed in this philosophy that ultimately when we were under colonization, we really could not see any one country free unless we thought of the entire continent being freed of colonization. And so how do we mobilize and organize around that unity, that concept of unity to ultimately serve the individual countries or the descendants of those countries? And so when I think about Birthright Africa, it's clearly a Pan-Africanist mission in that sense. We accept anyone who identifies as African descent, whether they are Black American, Caribbean American, Afro-Latinx. I can't wait for our first Afro-Asian scholar. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a few that I've heard of that um, may join. There probably is someone on our database and I don't even know it. And us coming together and having these conversations about how lost we've been in our identities under a system of racism and oppression, like that's Pan-Africanist to me. Mm -hmm. And where do birthright scholars go in Africa? Or is it, does the location change every year? The locations are based on our education partners. So we empower our high schools, colleges, and community-based organizations that are led by administrators, teachers, principals, to choose a country that's deemed safe to travel by the Department of State. So as long as it's deemed to travel uh, safely, we are open as Birthright Africa. There tends to be a concentration of interest in Ghana. Naturally, they're seen as a gateway to Africa. They have a lot of great cultural sites and history that really speak to that disconnect of you know, enslaved Africans coming through the castles and dungeons in the Cape Coast that went through the Middle Passage to get to the Americas, both on in the Caribbean and in America. And so, you know, and represent really great leading edge businesses and leaders, entrepreneurs that are driving the future of Africa. Because let's be clear, the narrative we're not going to succumb to in Birthright is just enslavement and colonization. Yes, there was a 
depth and devastation related to who we are as a people that we cannot overlook. But it's about this idea that we take strength in the resilience of that and then look towards our brilliance from the beginnings of times, like the civilizations we were running before Europeans came and colonized. I mean, if you just learned that history, like Wakanda and Black Panther was real, guys. Like that was real. (laughs) (laughs) And the kind of future that they showed in that movie is real. Like we see it on the Mm -hmm. continent when we get there. And so the misperceptions are completely dispelled. And so we're open. Ghana has been a go-to South Africa. Our first high school went to, and uh, that's been it so far for the most part. But we are seeing partners interested in Kenya, Nigeria, Senegal, and Ethiopia are some of the target countries as well for Birthright. Do you have any stories of individuals who went through the program and that were particularly, you know, your poster child, you know, like um, the exceptional experiences that they had, or, I mean, it could be exceptional experiences, or it could actually be, I don't want to say negative, Mm -hmm. but, you know, like a different experience, because I know some of my peers in Korea who are whatever uh, background that they had, some, some of them did not have you know, this rosy experience. Some of them came back feeling even more isolated. So um, that's heavy. Yeah, we can go either way. (laughs) Um, But I guess just stories in general would help ground the experience. Yeah, no, I will definitely say we have not had the experience so far from my knowledge of anyone feeling more disconnected or isolated. I I would hope not. (laughs) I would pray not because it literally is this um, connection to a culture and roots that most find surprising how quickly they're able to feel home the minute mm-hmm. they land in, uh, in the country, like the minute. I don't know, it's something in the air, it's something in the vibe, the, the way the folks are greeting you and treating you, welcoming you into the sphere. That's been pretty much a consistent experience. There's... Um, Definitely folks who after the 10 days may not feel this like, oh my God, I, I cried and like, I'm so like ready to come back and live here. But we have that too. Let's not kid ourselves. But there's folks where the it takes maybe about a year before they can process everything that they went through and then feel that connection. But otherwise, most folks are like, they see the commonality, they see the similarities in the food, the music, the people, especially in Ghana, like the genuineness by which folks interact and say hello to you. And I think it may be a New York thing, like we're so not used mm-hmm. to. <laughs> but the scholars who've predominantly been from New York are just so amazed at how genuine and warm people are. Obviously, going through the Cape Coast Castle is very emotional. We've had folks, you know, who really do break down in tears uh, over the just what folks went through and but then there's this like other side where like you're so proud that your ancestors survived long enough for you to even be here to actually return it's Mm. so monumental and then like you said like what it feels like to be in a country where everyone pretty much looks like you we've had scholars mistaken for being from that country that's always great or like they look at someone and it's like, oh, you could look like my cousin or you look like you could be my aunt. Like that happens consistently. We've had young men. One story that really stands out to me around this concept of being around folks that look like you. Two of the young men in our first cohort told me that for the first time they felt like they could relax their shoulders and not feel like they had to look back at cops seeing them as a threat. Now, as a female, I I wasn't thinking about that kind of an impact. But that was so telling. And so it's no surprise when you hear, 
you know, not only 98% of them feel like they have this pride, confidence and belief in themselves on such another level, but they all can see themselves coming back multiple times to multiple countries and over 90% even wanting to live and work on the continent. This is from one trip, a place that you felt so disconnected to, thought of as just war, poverty and disease, likely because of the media and the lack of education. But because we you know, you get the experience and then you meet all these great locals and peers and universities and leaders and entrepreneurs that are doing well. Like there are people doing very well on the continent uh, that are from that country, maybe from another part of Africa and then even Europeans and Asians, right? Like we mm -hmm. see the influx of others coming. So why aren't we there too at a level, right? As, as descendants of, of our ancestors. And so I'm so proud of Birthright being able to mobilize our partners that have already had this in their mindset to bring young people. Or we want to also honor the folks that have been doing this for years. There are nonprofits and others that are bringing young people to the continent. We're just looking to institutionalize it, make it so well known in the culture that every young person that's looking for this experience can actually receive their birthright. That's all. I think I'm really thinking back to I guess it's when you were explaining the very, very monumental kind of moments that you have where you, you know, um, break down into tears or you see something that you can't unsee. I think that made me think a lot about how, for me, I went to Korea as a, like when I was very young, like fourth grade or so. And then at that point, you know, you're not old enough to really think about anything. But that's why we started at 13 for that reason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And but the memories from that time, mm -hmm. I thought back to a lot when I was there as an adult in my 20s. Mm. Um, so I feel like and then now afterwards, I think back to that time, you know, yeah. the two years that I spent. So I feel like yeah, it's just a trip. But at the same time, it's not just a trip. Like it's this memory or experience that you will kind of use as a touchstone, I don't know what the correct stone, keystone um, for, you know, as you go on in your life. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's a constant reference point for the rest of your life. That's why it is life changing. Mm -hmm. Our, we do IG lives with our scholars, by the way. Follow us at Birthright Africa on Instagram. We tend mm -hmm. to have about two a month on Tuesdays at six. And I tend to ask, what was your life before Birthright? And what was your life after Birthright? Because it literally is this shift. You can't unsee and unconnect to what you connected to at that ancestral level. And so, yeah, it's powerful. I also briefly, briefly, briefly went to Africa. Oh, great. <laughs> um, I went to Sierra Leone briefly mm -hmm. uh, for this photography thing. And then Ebola happened. And then I had to leave mm -hmm. after oh, a couple of weeks, sorry. three weeks or so. But I still remember the first time. And this was my first time outside of America or Korea. So this is before I had gone to Europe or anything. So this is like the first oh, different wow. place that you I went to. You went to Sierra Leone before you got to Europe? Yeah, I don't. I mean, it's just the That's how it happened. Incredible, <laughs> um, because what our joke is in the culture is that you know we got black people always going to Europe. Like, why aren't we thinking mm -hmm. about Africa first? And that's also part of the shift that we're making. <laughs> I w I will say that. The, the, so when I landed, I got there really late at night and then we had to take this small boat across this, I don't even, I don't even know, oh like some body of water. Um, and I'm just freaking out because this is the first time I've been so far away from everything that I know, oh right? God. But the stars were very, very clear oh, yeah. at night. Yeah. So like, I'm on this boat, I'm a little bit afraid because I'm in a deep body of dark water. Yeah, no, um, And I'm looking up and I see this. For the first um, night there, there too? Yeah, and I mean... The, the, it's scary, but at the same time, I can't unsee that, right. you know, and I'm, I have no connection to that ethnically speaking, but it's still something that, you know, mm -hmm. I keep with me and that I 
put up against any other kind of stereotypical media representation mm. of mm-hmm. uh, whether it be Wakanda or like the UNICEF Africa, you know, whether well, it's either extreme. Yeah, I can definitely kind of the have UNICEFs of the world. We love the UN. I mean, we have a love hate relationship with the UN. Let's put it that way. I am in America because of the UN. Let's be clear. Like, I, I can't discount that. My dad got a job at the UN. That's why we, en- we ended up in America in New York City and being able to get political asylum because mm-hmm. our country then, you know, was taken over by a dictator that my dad would have been per- persecuted against. So when we talk about freedom and what America meant to me, like it literally was this idea that, you know, we were persecuted back home. Um, it was the UK or America. I, I feel blessed that it ended up being America. But um, all that to say, yeah, we were definitely trying to undo the deficit narrative and make it mm-hmm. an asset based one. And yeah. Yeah. And I think also with all of the I mean, I know we spoke a little bit about how virtual education is great for accessibility, but at the same time, in a world that's so virtual already, like that physical travel is so important. But as we come to the end of time, I just wanted to turn it over to you for anything else you'd like to add or any of your hopes for uh, returning scholars, future scholars who will go and then return. Yeah. Yeah. Just looking forward or looking back, whichever one you want to do. There's so much, you know, I'm personally struggling as someone who loves to travel with this moment. But what I will say to encourage really all of us, um, but of course, especially those of African descent, because we are seeing a Black Lives Matter movement that is of Mm -hmm. historical proportion for the better, ultimately. What I've been connecting to is this idea that we're going through an ancestral experience right now and thinking about like history, right? a time of change as it relates to what it means to be a human being and what it has meant. So there was this 400 years that started at that point 400 years ago with the idea of an African descended black person seen as less valuable to the point where you were enslaved or colonized for just who you were um, and not valued for the skills. Because that's the other thing. That's the other myth. It's not that we weren't skilled and brought over. We were actually brought over for our skill. So understanding that we're going through this shift where we're being valued at a higher level and that value starts with self. So I see this level of almost sacrifice and service now in this time of health pandemic and civil unrest as a time of sacrifice and service and seeing myself as the future ancestor of the future descendants that are going to look back at this time and know that we fought for them to be that much more ahead than where we are today. Because today we are where we are because of the ancestors of the past. So as a scholar, continue to fight to learn who you are and help others along the way as they want to become allies. Um, And now what I'm learning is accomplices. Accomplices take action to create equity in the world. They don't just raise awareness of themselves to themselves and others, but actually take action. And the action for us as birthright scholars, alumni, birthright tribe, we call ourselves a birthright tribe. Mm. Find yourself in the movement, you know, and you can donate to us. You can volunteer with us. You can follow us at Birthright Africa, IG, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, all of it. The more we get the awareness that learning who you are and where you come from And what that story is, is powerful. 
and there's a pride, a resilience, and a brilliance you can tap into for your future. And so hang on, connect to us virtually while we start looking forward to the future of physically reconnecting. But the virtual connections can be just as powerful. We can actually work together now. I'm not going to say any more than that because I think that's a perfect place to end off. And I don't think I can actually say anything better than that. So um, <laughs> thank, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for everything that you do with, you know, the talents that you have. And yeah, best of luck with uh, Birthright Africa. Thank you so much, Eugene. Your your stories really inspired me and made me feel like, you know, our the Birthright mission really connects to everybody from every background. And then I think now we see how vital it is, especially uh, for our youth and young adults of African descent to truly understand their value. And thank you for this podcast and work you do. I look forward to checking it out. much for tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project please follow us on social media at divided families podcast thanks as always to flannel albert for the wonderful music and see you next time